Okay, so welcome to another Meet the Author. We've got a great conversation in line today. Gary, who do we have with us? Well, Tamara, I'm really, really pleased to have Gary Klein join us. Gary has written another book. This book is called Snapshots of the Mind. How people make decisions, size up situations, spot anomalies, and anticipate problems in real world settings. Morning, Gary. That's a, a good description. Thank you for, for inviting me uh, to, to join this book club. And thanks for all the great questions you posed in advance, uh, Gary Wong. Much appreciated. Great. Okay. Well, let's, let's not waste any more time. Let's get right into it. So, Gary, what made you decide to write this book? Is there a certain need that you're trying to fulfill? Well, um, the, 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 the simple answer is I wanted to write this book in order to provide a, a perspective on, uh, on decision-making, a naturalistic decision-making perspective on, on cognition. And so um, that's probably the answer uh, that, that we can go with. That would be the wrong response. That's inaccurate. But it, it, it'll work for, for this. Uh, do you really want to know how I came to write the book? Uh, I guess you do. All right. <laughs> so in 2013, I wrote my previous book about insight, seeing what others don't. And as a way of publicizing it, um, uh, MIT Press or, or Perseus Books actually uh, 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 arranged for me to have a, uh, a, a platform on psychology today so that I could post essays there. So I posted essays as a way of publicizing that book. And I did that for uh, maybe a year or so, posting essays about insight and various aspects of insight. And that was useful, it was helpful, I enjoyed doing it. But then I said, I've got this platform. Why don't I just post essays about anything that I'm interested in? So I started posting essays on all kinds of topics. And I did that for about nine years. And now I have a collection of over, uh, well over a hundred essays. And my, my oldest daughter, Devorah, said, you know, you've got all these essays and some of them aren't terrible. Maybe you can find somebody who would like to publish them. Uh, and Devorah is a cognitive psychologist and uh, she she uh, she was really encouraging me to, to find a way to publish it. MIT Press had been after me to publish another book, which I didn't want to write. And I said, I don't have to write another book. I've got all these essays. But it was really a, a grab bag of, of, of essays. And um, I was going to simply uh, collect them. But MIT Press said, can you bring some order to them? Can you find some, some themes and, and write an introduction and an introduction to each of, uh, each of the sections if you break it into sections? So I started organizing it and I realized even though these essays were written randomly, whatever I thought about, there were some overarching themes. There, was this, there were other themes about what is the cognitive dimension and why don't people see it? There was the theme about training. How do you train people to be better at decision-making and sense-making and, and functions like that? There was the theme about um, artificial intelligence and automation and what is that? how is that going to affect us? There was a theme about expertise. There was a theme about um, 
uh, heuristics and biases? And how does that intersect with uh, the way we, we make decisions? And, and I realized all these themes are different facets of the cognitive dimension. And that by putting these essays together, I've got a way of telling that story about what is the cognitive dimension, what are the different aspects of it, how does it play out, and why it matters. And, and reading through the essays, people will start to get an appreciation of the cognitive dimension so they can start seeing cognition in a way they didn't before. So by the time I finished write, uh, collecting it, I don't say I wrote the book, but I collected these and organized them and uh, synthesized them. This is now perhaps my favorite, the favorite book that I've ever uh, written. This, this, I think, is really captures my thoughts. Plus, because it, it was in these essays were for psychology today, they're all short. And they're all written for a general audience. So I, I'm, I'm not writing for other researchers or for academics. I'm, I'm writing for, for a general audience. So that's another thing that I like about the book. Yeah. And, I, you know, having read through the book, I think you did a great job organizing it because you did organize into nine different parts, different aspects of decision making, which I really, really like. So our Meet the Author audience typically consists of safety professionals, but today I also welcome members of the um, Naturalistic Decision-Making Association, if you're there. So welcome to our session. But I wanna do focus on safety and talk about the interest in how, the practical side of improving safety. So how can your book help them do that? Right, how can it help them do that? It can help them do that. One of the ways that it can help them do that is when there has been either an accident or a near accident. The, a typical response is, we've got to issue a new, a new protocol or a, 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 new, a new guideline or a new policy to, to tell people that they, they shouldn't do this again. And, and so we can prevent this. We can increase our our, our, our safety. Um, but there's another reaction that they can have, which is curiosity. Why did it happen? And what was going on inside the mind of the people who uh, were either at the sharp end or were at the blunt end to help us understand how we got to this point? And I'll give you an example, one of my favorite examples. Uh, it's about a Navy pilot of mine who, um, a Navy pilot uh, who's a friend of mine, uh, Doug Harrington Jr. And Doug Harrington was a really great pilot and he flew an F-4 and he was so good he became an instructor pilot and he did that. And then it was time for him to transition to an A-6. And so he learned to fly an A6, and now he had to make carrier landings. And he had to do six carrier landings during the day. And then that night he had to do four more, and then he'd be qualified. So he's coming in for his first carrier landing, and he's got it all lined up. He's happy. Everything is working out. And then the landing signal officer on the carrier says, come right, come right. And Doug knows he's got he's got it perfectly lined up. 
and this guy is telling him to come right. So Doug is a, a Navy pilot, so he does what you would expect a Navy pilot to do. He ignores the landing signal officer because he knows he's got it lined up and he gets waved off. They won't let him land. So he has to go around and try it again so that uh, there can be a safe landing. And um, he tries it again and he's told, come right, come right. So it comes right a little bit, not enough. He gets waved off again. And he and he he realizes this landing signal officer, he's got more patience than I have fuel. I better listen to him. So he comes right, he tries to follow directions. All of his landings that day are 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 pretty ragged, pretty poor. And he's told, we're not going to do nighttime landings because you did such a terrible job. We're going to repeat the daytime landings tomorrow. If you don't do better, then that's it. That's the end of your flying career in the Navy. And Doug is in shock. And all of his friends on the ship come up to him. And they're trying to try and help him. They're telling him things like, Doug, you really got to bear down tomorrow. Or Doug, this is really important. They're driving him crazy. So he doesn't know what happened. He's, he's going to sleep. And there's a knock on the door and he says, go away. He doesn't want to talk to anybody. He, he, he doesn't know. He's hoping this is a bad dream. And the knock continues. And it's the landing signal officer, on, on uh, the guy on the flight deck, who has no training, uh, uh, no uh, training authority. He's not responsible for Doug. But he felt badly for him. He wanted to help him. So he comes, Doug lets him in. And, and, and the guy said, I'm not here to tell you anything. I just... I just, I'm just curious. I want to find out what was going on. And Doug said, I had it perfectly lined up. And you kept, you kept telling me, come right, come right. And, and the, uh, the landing signal officer is trying to understand what's wrong. What's, what's, what's wrong with this picture? So he said, Doug, you're, what was the last plane you flew? It was an F-4. On an F-4, Doug was in a straight line with the nose of the plane and the tail. And even when, when it was, uh, he was an instructor pilot, they were all on a straight line with the A6. It was a two-seater and he was off to the side and somebody, a navigator was gonna be next to him. And so the landing signal officer says, well, maybe because you're, you're not uh, on, on that center line. And Doug said, I thought about it, but what difference is that going to make? It's, I'm only off by about a foot and a half. That shouldn't make much of a difference. So now the landing signal officer has diagnosed what's the wrong belief that Doug is holding. So that's part in terms of, of, of safety professionals. That's what you get from curiosity is to try to surface the flawed belief. That's what I mean by seeing cognition. He's seeing what's wrong with Doug's mental model. And then he goes further and he says, let's do this exercise. And the people on this call, you can do the exercise too, if you like. Hold out your arm with your thumb raised and line it up with a straight line someplace in the room, okay? Mm -hmm. The thumb is, your, is the nose of your airplane. The straight line is the center line of the aircraft carrier. You're going to land this on that straight line. Close one eye so that it's all lined up. You got it? Now, move your head a foot and a half over to the left. And 
pull your thumb back over. And do you see how the parallax effect is happening? Mm -hmm. Distorting. And if you were just following your thumb in, you would be you would be off the center line. It would be a dangerous landing. And as soon as he does that, Doug says, I'm an idiot. Of course, that's the effect. And then the next day, Doug has no trouble getting all his landings right. So I love the story because the landing signal officer wasn't there to tell Doug what to do. He was there to try to see the cognition, to try to understand what was wrong with Doug's thinking. And then he went further to concoct, he just made up this exercise to make it visible and emotional to Doug so that Doug could realize it. So that's an example of seeing cognition and why it might matter to safety professionals. Can, can I give you another example? Sure. Yeah, you're on a roll. Keep going. All right. Here's an example that I heard about at a conference of firefighters. And uh, after I had given my talk that day, I was having dinner with some of the uh, uh, administrators and chiefs. And one of them said, Gary, uh, Gary Kia, help me understand this. We had this strange event in my department where a fire truck was rushing to the scene of a fire. It was at the harbor. And then as it turned the corner, it flipped over on its side. And he, showed, he, he later sent me a picture of this fire truck on its side. And he said, that, that's ridiculous. And, you know, we, 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 we talked to, to the driver. We told him, we, we can't have these kinds of accidents. You've got to be more careful. You've got to be more mindful of speed. And then a couple of months later, it happened to another driver. And the same place. And he also flipped his truck over. And so we keep telling them to be more careful and we issue guidance, we issue policy, and it's not working. You know, what, how do we get it into their heads? So that was his approach. But what he didn't say was, why did it happen? We have two of these people now. Let's take advantage of this double accident and try to get inside the heads of the people who are involved and try to understand what's wrong with their thinking or with, with their mental models or with their beliefs. So these, this guy was the opposite of the landing signal officer in the first story I told you. This was somebody who showed no curiosity about why things were going wrong. That's why this, this is important, I think, to safety professionals to expand your repertoire. Many of you are probably already doing this, but if you're not, I'm suggesting that you can start. And if you are, there are cognitive interviewing techniques that can perhaps help you do it better. Yeah, that's great. But on our show last, last month, we had Jeff Dalto on and we analyzed 37 success stories that he compiled. And the big aha came for me after reading your book there is, is how well what you've just described lines up with this work as imagined versus work as done safety conversations, which we did have. Where we know that work as imagined, it's based on that designer's mindset, applying analytical tools. 
So all those things like plans, procedures, checklists, all these things were kind of approved and they became, that's what you're supposed to do. And what we call in safety, the black line. Mm -hmm. Well, what we also find out too, as you say, through interviewing and being curious, we also like to understand what is the blue line, which is the work as done. And that's detecting these weak signals, as you say, seeing cognition, and then adapting to avoid what we call the hazard line, crashing on the aircraft carrier, as we, as we would say here. So I really like how your, your stuff really connects with safety. And having said that, you, you term this coin naturalistic decision-making, and you've even spawned a community and movement for the past three decades. So can you give everybody here maybe, what is the NDM approach? Okay, great. So naturalistic decision-making is a community of researchers from around the world. Um, and this community examines decision-makers outside of the laboratory in natural settings where it's much harder to do research because there's all kinds of messiness. There's all kinds of, you know, the work as done. There's issues about, I'm working in a team. I'm working with wicked problems, with, with goals that are ill-defined. I'm working with uh, all kinds of ambiguity and confusion and rapid changes in the situation and missing information. and these are the kinds of, uh, of of conditions that would make it very difficult to to, uh, to 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 do a systematic study in the laboratory. Um, but but that's the way it is. and and so um, we we are work we, we we sometimes do laboratory studies, but we mostly go out into the field, observe people, interview people, and try to see how they what are the tough decisions why are they tough and how are how what have people learned in order to handle it and what kinds of support can we provide to help them one of the main features of naturalistic decision making is our interest in expertise because you don't Doug Harrington had many years of experience as a pilot by the time he got to, to, the, to the story I, I told you. So you don't give decision authority to people who don't have experience. And so we're quite interested in how do people develop experience and how do, how do they apply it? And I once was at a conference and I was talking about my work with firefighters and um, the people I studied in my first uh, project had over 20 years of experience. And somebody in the audience who did laboratory research on decision-making said, I give, I give my subjects and my experiments, I give them lots of training. And I said, how much? And he said, I give them 10 hours of practice. And I thought, 10 hours versus 20 years? And, and you think that's equivalent? You don't even know what expertise involves. And so... Um, and, and there's even an attempt on the part of conventional laboratory-based researchers to um, uh, uh, demean e experts and to, and to look for examples that experts aren't performing well. And, and they, they, they deliberately 
try to reduce experience because if you give people tasks that they're familiar with, their background is going to vary. And, they, and so the results are going to vary and you're going to have greater variability. And the more variability, the harder it is to statistically come up with differences. So the way to overcome that is to give people tasks they've never seen before. And then you can control how much experience they have, maybe even give them 10, uh, 10 hours of practice as, as if that's going to turn them into experts. So, so there's uh, an attempt to squeeze expertise out of the studies. You can't wait 20 years if you're running a laboratory study. But those are the people that we're, we're dealing with. Yeah, yeah, so cool. Well, I'm going to take you back to the book because really we've talked about the first couple of parts in your book. What is cognition? How does it work? I love though part three. You titled this Rationalist Fever Dreams. I just love the title here. And you included 12 essays that contrast the cognitive approach with the mechanical one and assumes that difficult task can be broken down into steps and procedures and the thinking can be replaced by an analyst. So all you safety professionals, we've seen this before, right? The mechanistic approach. So can you share a couple of favorite essays that you have on this, Gary? Let's see what we've got in this, in this section. Um... Yeah, so some of my favorite essays here are about heuristics and biases. There's a whole community of people studying heuristics and biases. And I just saw an article recently that they compiled about 87 biases that they've, they've identified that people fall prey to. Um, but they're not looking at the strengths that people have. And that was the title of my very first book, Sources of Power. What are people capable of? So the biases are just giving us an imbalanced view of, of, of people as hopelessly irrational rather than as creative and effective. So that's one of the essays is trying to restore that kind of balance. Another essay is about confirmation bias, which is one of the most popular biases that people talk about. And I, I, I look at the evidence for confirmation bias, and I, I show that the evidence is surprisingly meager, that it's, it's um, the, the very original studies did not show the effect that people are claiming for confirmation bias. And attempts to de-bias people are notoriously unsuccessful, for, which is good because another essay is about positive heuristics, is about the fact that, yeah, we use these heuristics because they help us. They're valuable. And if you try to de-bias people and make them stop using the heuristics, um, because the heuristics aren't perfect and can sometimes get things wrong, you're going to be hurting people. You're going to be making them less safe. Uh, and and so those those are three of the of my uh, of the essays that that I enjoyed the most in this section. What about you? Did you have any others that I haven't mentioned? Yeah, the one that um, I'm always interested, particularly now with um, baseball season around the corner, and the you know the World Baseball Classic on right now. 
is the myth of Moneyball. Right. And if anybody's read the book, it really goes into how analytics was at its kind of like initial beginnings and how it really took over. But why is it a myth? Yep. Um, so I, uh, I, I haven't talked to Michael Lewis about it, but I've, I've heard uh, people in the decision research community love love Lewis's book about Moneyball because it shows how these baseball scouts were just using their intuition and they weren't using analytics and they were they were missing things. But one of the myths is exactly that, that the, the, the baseball scouts were using statistics. They were using the best statistics available. Yeah. And now we have better statistics and they, they use those statistics. It wasn't that they were allergic to statistics. They, they use batting average, which doesn't take into account walks. So now we, we have better data that, that they can use. Plus there was some flaws with Billy Bean's uh, Oakland Athletics. Uh, the flaws in the reasoning there is uh, some of the key players that they acquired weren't through the analytics. And so uh, Michael Lewis doesn't uh, doesn't highlight those kinds of issues. So Money Moneyball is a a great read because Michael Lewis is a great writer, but the the image that he gives is is, is severely misleading. And uh, Tamara has uh, her hand up. <laughs> Thank you very much, Gary. Uh, so we do have a question. Uh, Michael, did you want to unmute and ask your question? Yeah. Hey, Gary. Nice to see you again. Um, I'm just uh, one of the areas that I'm kind of quite fascinated in is, is the whole mechanism of knowledge transfer from, say, someone who has deep expertise. And if we think in the safety environment of high risk uh, situations and they are taking on an apprentice and they're there's obviously uh, a desire whether you're training or uh, bringing uh, extra capacity uh, in your operating staff to want to be able to bring up staff as quickly as possible so that they can operate and have um, uh, confidence in their ability to be safe in risky environments while accumulating experience. So I'm just curious, uh, I know uh, we met through Dave Snowden and his work with narrative and stuff, but with your naturalistic decision movement uh, uh, research and work, what practical techniques have you found effective to really aid that deeply uh, experiential knowledge transfer from a master to uh, an apprentice has, who has not yet had the time to accumulate that experiential knowledge? Okay, that's a great question. Um, and I've got a couple of, of reactions to it um, in terms of helping uh, to bring people up to speed more quickly. The first is of uh, and some work that, that we did in, with the petrochemical industry, uh, we, we looked at the mindsets that people had, and especially the mindsets that were getting in the way. So one suggestion is, what are the mindsets that the more uh, skilled practitioners have? Um, somebody told me, uh, this was a guy, Ike Bracken, he had about 40 years of experience. He said, when when he was starting out, when he started out as a trainer, he was trying to do what he had, what had been done to him, which was if somebody makes a mistake, you just slam them. 
because that's the treatment he got. And it's fun. I mean, it's, it's enjoyable. There's a certain satisfaction. But he realized it wasn't having much of an effect. And over time, he, he, he switched his mindset. He, he, he did it unconsciously in some ways, but he was also aware of it. So there was some of it was conscious enough so he could tell me that he switched from being highly critical to being curious. If somebody's made a mistake, why'd they make it? What were they seeing? What would they understand? How are they sizing it up? And it becomes a dialogue with them rather than an attack on them. So that's one suggestion. Another suggestion is very often when people uh, have uh, uh, somebody, if I have a, an apprentice assigned to me, I just I say, watch what I'm doing and uh, stay out of my way. That That's not particularly helpful. Or I try to tell them, these are the steps I'm following because I think that's something that they've got to learn. But I'm not telling them about what's called tacit knowledge. I'm not telling them about what I'm noticing. And, you know, look at the rust over here, but there's no rust over here. So what is it, what's the implication of, of, of this? Or, uh, you know, li listen, to, listen to that sound, you know, let's rev it. And, what, whatever it is that I'm noticing, it's hard to put it into words. So I usually don't explain it. I don't explain what, you know, how, how I'm sizing things up. I don't explain where I might, where I might be wrong or what, what, what options, if I'm trying to diagnose a problem, what, what are the options I'm considering and why I'm not thinking about them. So there's all of that kind of cognitive debriefing that you can provide to people that goes beyond just having them follow the procedures. And a lot of it is based on the opportunities that, I, that, that you would have if you're the professional and somebody's trailing around next to you, you've got the, the, the encounters, the experiences themselves. And so you can unpack each one of the experiences because you've both seen the same thing, but you've, you've understood things differently. You've drawn different inferences compared to, uh, to, to the novice. So you can start by asking, what do you think's going on here? And now no, take a look at this. What do you think this means? So you can make it into a, a different kind of dialogue and and that means taking your your uh, your uh, supervisors and your trainers and preparing them to see the cognitive dimension, because many of them aren't. They're just uh, focused on the steps to be followed. And Tamara has her hand up again. Yes. Hi. So there seems to be a problem with the hand raising. So I I'm going to be ushering people in. Um, so sorry about that, people. It's a technical issue. So just uh, let me know and I'll, I will get you in. It, it's interesting, you know, as you're talking, it sparks my, my mind of my old professor, Marvin Novick, who talked about sharing opportunities and our life chances. So that was really beautiful to have that memory. Thank you. I wanted to ask uh, David Hurst if you might come in and share your question on mic and camera. 
Yes, thank, thanks, Tamara. My, my field is management, which in the Anglo-American mainstream has been dominated by the analytical, technical, instrumental approach. My experience as a practitioner was that this was totally inadequate to preparing me for the life of a player who is continually on the ground acting forwards into uncertain, unknowable future. So I want to go up the ladder of abstraction or ask Gary to, what do your conclusions say about our theories of mind? In particular, how do they mesh with a, a, a dual process bicameral theory of mind that we have both this capacity for acting as players in the moment and acting as analysts looking backwards? Uh, okay, that is another very rich question. Um, so first of all, th this this plays into the uh, the portion of the book that Gary Wong mentioned about rationalist fever dreams. And nowhere do, do rationalist fever dreams grip people more tightly than in the area of management, where people go and get their MBAs and they learn all of these techniques and they expect that they're going to be able to apply these techniques and they're, they're going to um, be valuable and, and listen to and, and have an impact. And, and experience doesn't matter because I've got all these analytical techniques and, and we know that that, that, that doesn't make, make sense. Um, in terms of uh, a theory of mind, I, I suspect you're talking about system one, system two type of thinking. Um, and we, we know that you need both, both systems. There, there are times when system one thinking most of the time, that's what we depend on. But sometimes we engage in system two thinking and we have to be more, more, more thoughtful and reflective. And you know, Don Shearn talked about the reflective practitioner and many practitioners are reflective. Many of them are not. That, that's also been a surprise for me. How many practitioners... Um, will go through a, a tough case and say, okay, I'm done with that and, and, and not think about it, not do a review. What, what, what happened there? And uh, maybe if it turned out badly, why? What, did, what did, I, did I miss? Maybe it was inevitable, but maybe looking back, there were, there were clues that I should have paid attention to with hindsight, because if you can't be smart with hindsight, you can never be smart. One of the ways that we try to, that I identify who's an expert in a field is I, I'll ask them, what's the last mistake you made? And people who sometimes are fairly high in the organization will say, I can't think of any mistakes. And right away, I lose some respect for them. I lose a lot. The real experts have no problems telling me the last mistake they made because it's still burning at them. They're still mulling it over. They're still trying to uh, relive it and think about how could I have handled it better? So that, that's, um, that's the reflective practitioner in action. Now, most organizations, now, right now, system two thinking has taken 
uh, a, a, a dominant role, that people are supposed to be analytical, we're supposed to be more careful, and we're supposed to, because system one thinking can sometimes lead us astray. But system two thinking without our intuition, which is based on our experience, can also mislead us. We can set things, set up problems in the wrong way and, and, and not make very much progress. Uh, I feel that if we want to improve performance, we've got to reduce errors. And a lot of systems to think system two thinking is about reducing errors. But that can't be all of it. You don't want to go home at the end of the day and say, I had a great day today. I didn't make any mistakes. You want to accomplish things. You want to have insights. And so that's what you want to increase. And, and people don't pay attention to that. They have methods for reducing errors, but they don't really pay attention to how can I, how can I get better? How can I get smarter? How can I develop a richer mental model? And the richer mental model is going to be situated in system one thinking and in, in the associative uh, level that, that you've acquired. Does that does that answer your question? Yes, thanks, uh, Gary. It's certainly uh, certainly very helpful. Thank you. Okay, I'm just looking at the chat panel, and there's just a wealth of interesting questions. But uh, before we get on and allow people to have a chat, I want to really focus back on the book and get two important subjects out that Gary has in the book. Um, Gary, you you dedicate a whole part to ask how can we train people to become better decision makers. But to address that, you first introduced this thing called RPD, which is recognition prime decision. And then later you talk about how that led you into something you call shadow box. So there's a couple of big heavy things there. Can you just give us a bit of an oversight? What did you learn? And what can you tell us about these two? Sure, I'm happy to do that. So um, recognition prime decision-making is a, a model that we developed in the 1980s. And we developed it using our work with firefighters. And we weren't, uh, it's sort of about intuition, but that wasn't our goal. We didn't expect to, uh, to go there. We thought that if you're a firefighter, you've got to make a tough decision under time pressure. You didn't have a chance to set up a matrix here's all my options and here's the evaluation dimensions. We thought maybe you'd only look at two options to see which was better. And we started talking to firefighters and interviewing them about their tough cases. And they said, we never compare options. We never try to see which is the best. We never even make decisions. You just know what to do. And we just got funded to study decision-making and firefighters. So that's not what we wanted to hear. Um, but they kept insisting on that. So we became curious, what are they doing? And what they're doing is drawing on 10, 15, 20 years of experience to recognize what's going on in a situation. And once they think they know what's going on in a situation, they recognize, here's what you do about it. So that's the core of the, of the recognition prime decision model. And it's about intuition, but it's not just about intuition. And that's a confusion some people sometimes uh, some people make. After you think you know what you're supposed to do, 
if there's time, and usually there's enough time, then you switch into system two thinking, into an analysis. If this is what my intuition is telling me is uh, what I should do, will it work in this situation? Let's, let me imagine it. We call it mental simulation. Let me see if it'll work here. And you imagine it. And if it works, then you do it. If it almost works, then you modify it so that it'll work. And if you can't find a way to fix the problems, you say, forget that. What else could I do? And you keep going down until you, you find an option that you think will work. And you don't know if it's the best option. Who knows what's the best option? So that's the recognition prime decision model. It's a blend of intuition and analysis. And then there's a third part of building stories because when you encounter a situation, maybe you're not sure what's happening and you're engaged in sense-making to try to sort out what's going on in this situation. So we have this model of decision-making in, in, in a variety of settings, and we've done research, other people have replicated the research, so it's, it's pretty solid. What do you do with it? So if I'm gonna train you to be a better decision-maker, I'm not gonna teach you the model because the model describes what you would do. And for many years, we didn't know what to do with it. And then I learned about this technique from a friend of mine, Neil Heinz, who's a firefighter, uh, New York Fire Department. He's recently retired. And it's the technique we call shadow box. And what we do with shadow box is we develop tough scenarios and we bring you through those scenarios. And then at a certain point, we'll stop and we'll say, all right, here's four options. Which one would you would you uh, choose? Which one would you do? And then write down your reasons. And then we go a little further into the scenario and we say, here's three goals you might pursue at this point. Rank order them and write down why. And then we go a little bit further and then we might say, Here's five pieces of information you might pursue. Rank order their importance and write down why. So you're going through this situation and you're responding. We have a small panel of experts, maybe three or so, and they've gone through the same scenario you have. And they filled it out the same way you did. So when you show what your ranking is, you immediately get feedback, what was their ranking? And you want your ranking to match theirs. That's the game quality to it. But the real important part is you wrote down what was your rationale. And we've synthesized what was their rationale. And you get to see the inferences they were making, the problems they were noticing, the cues they were spotting that you totally missed. And so that's where the real learning goes on by comparing what they're seeing in the situation that you didn't. So it's seeing this situation through the eyes of the experts, but the experts don't have to be there. You've already captured their material. So that's the way Shadowbox works. And we have a video version of it where you just watch a scene and then you stop it and you say, here's what I think is the significant cue in this scene. And then after you, and, and here's why I think it's significant. And then at the end, you get to look at what the experts uh, tagged as the significant cues and why. And I've gone through this. I mean, I remember one medical situation 
where you had a, 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 a doctor walk in to examine a patient and the doctor didn't put on gloves. There were a bunch of obvious things and I'm happily tagging all of them. And then I look at what the experts had and the expert said, did you notice that this nurse had been touching the wound and then reached in to get a pair of gloves without um, and, and, de and, and contaminated the whole box of gloves by doing that? I didn't see that. I never even noticed that. So you get all these ahas by watch by, by uh, um, picking up. What the, by uh, seeing what the experts were noticing that you missed. So that's how shadow box works. Cool, great, okay. So um, we've got about 10 minutes left. So let's take um, a couple of questions that you, that you maybe can pick out. Right. Uh, maybe something that um, we haven't talked about already. Okay, Anybody well, we good? did. Yeah, we had um, Alfred who had asked a question a while ago um okay. alfred did you still feel that um your point hadn't been touched on would you like to come in and share your thoughts with us okay so maybe i'll move on to the next person then because i'm not seeing tanya what about you yeah thanks tamara um, first off, thank you so much, Gary Klein, for your wealth of knowledge and sharing so much of this excellent material with, with us all, your, your body of work throughout your career and everything. Um, I would like to know your opinion on something that's been bothering me about cognition and what people believe they know um, of, of, as of late, um, and that's to do with video evidence. It seems as though just so as long as there's video evidence to something, we know what happened. Um, and I, I see that as a really strange change from how I, I thought cognition worked and how we thought we knew the world. That just so as long as somebody pulled out a smartphone and, and took, a, took a video, that's truth that's what actually happened just wondering if you could weigh in on this a little bit i share your concern i mean i, I think video evidence is is potentially very valuable and uh, a, a colleague of mine a late colleague mary omadai who, who passed away unfortunately uh, uh, uh she passed away recently she was in, in australia and she would fit lipstick cameras onto the helmets of, of firefighters. So she would be able to debrief them after a fire and they would have a, a video of what they were seeing, what, uh, where, where their, their head was pointed and it was an extremely useful technique. So we have, you know, so th there's a great value to that, to that, but it's not just what, they, what, what the camera was showing, she was also interviewing them about what was happening maybe it was something that was happening off camera um maybe there was a part that the camera wasn't showing or wasn't clear on the camera so i i i think there's 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 value but it can it, it i think it's i share your concern it's, it's risky and i think foolish to just take the video as as if that's all the evidence that we need yeah good one and if anybody's a sports fan, if you watch the Super Bowl, you can get so many different 
video camera shots, whether the, it was past defense, you know, or an intentional, whatever, it's never conclusive. So, I mean, that's another good piece of evidence. Well, a um, couple more questions that we've got here, but I, I want to get in part nine, because as we know, our show is meant to be pragmatic and practical. So I'm really pleased, Gary, that you do conclude with making waves, tools, and tactics for improvement. And again, these are tactics and tools for the general audience, but they certainly do apply for the safety professionals. In fact, you've got 42 tools that have been developed by the NDM community. Obviously, we can't discuss them all, but there's one I'd like you to talk about that I know I've used, and perhaps some others, and that's the pre-mortem method. Can you just quickly do a walk through that and how useful that can be? Because, of course, state professionals, we're concerned about risk and how to assess risk. Okay, the pre-mortem. There are people who think that this is... Uh, this is the the thing that I am best known for, not not the naturalistic decision making movement, not the recognition prime decision model, not shadow box. It's the pre mortem, so um, we might as well talk about that. We did not develop the pre mortem as something that we were going to describe to other people. We we developed it just as a small struggling company it's it's a technique for really risk mitigation um and let me tell you how we how we described it cuz then you'll understand how the how the technique works so if, if we did a project that that didn't go as well as we wanted or a project that failed we would have a a a a, a postmortem an after action review to see what went wrong. And I thought, why don't we try to do some of this up front? Let's do the postmortem at the front during the kickoff meeting to see what might go wrong. Okay, but that's there's nothing unique about that. I mean, lots of times in a kickoff meeting, somebody will say, all right, does anybody see a problem? And almost nobody says, raises their hand. So the exercise that we have is, all right, now I'm looking into a crystal ball. The crystal ball shows without a doubt that this project has failed. It's been a disaster. We know that it failed. There's no doubt about it. Now, everybody around the table, everybody on the team, Take two minutes, not more, just two minutes. Write down all the reasons why this plan failed. And people start writing like crazy. And then we go around the room and we say, all right, what did you have? And what did you have? And we we do item by item. We don't mm -hmm. let anybody get their whole list. We just sort of go around the room that way. And we didn't know it at the time, but what, what's happening here is that really changes the mindset. When you ask people after they've got a, a kickoff meeting going, what could go wrong? Nobody wants to disturb the harmony of the team and people really can't think about what might go wrong. But when you change the mindset to this has failed, now show how smart you are by telling us 
why it failed. Now there's a competition because I want to come up with reasons why it failed that Tamara didn't come up with and that other people didn't come up with. And so there's a competition, but there's also an intellectual engagement. What, what are the, how can I draw on my experience to imagine types of problems that, 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 is, uh, that, that we could be afflicted by? And it's amazing the kinds of responses that people give. I once did this with a, a, a large organization. We had 25 people in the room and we did a pre-mortem session. I thought it went very well. And somebody came up at the end and said, People said things in that meeting that they would that I've never heard before, that they would never say in a regular meeting. And so the pre-mortem method has really caught on. And it's been advocated by Nobel Prize winners. Danny Kahneman uh, talked about it at Davos. Um, uh, Richard Thaler uh, wrote, wrote something, wrote an essay about uh, you know, the, there was a topic, the most important idea that nobody's heard of, and that was his nomination. So this has somehow gotten the endorsement of the judgment and decision-making, the heuristics and biases community. Uh, it's got their endorsement. And oh. I don't need their endorsement. I just know it's, an, it, it's a technique that that works and we still use it for our projects. We feel uncomfortable starting off a project if we don't do a pre-mortem at the beginning. We feel it'd be like, you know, getting in a car and not buckling uh, your seatbelt. Cool, right? Well, we are at the top of the hour, but I know that tomorrow that we started a little bit later. So I think we can go an extra five minutes or so. Um, can I think we can take a couple more questions from the audience. Um, I know Tom, you, you, I think you've posed some interesting things. Tom, did you want to open up your mic and share some stuff? Yeah, I guess, I mean, one of the things that I see a lot of is that um, it's very easy because I come in as an outsider often to investigate fairly serious incidents. And although I know a lot more about, a, a lot less about the process than the people who own the plant or own the factory or whatever, it's easy to see things. It's almost the reverse of hindsight bias, that, as Gary was saying hindsight bias becomes people are just justifying what they did. So there's partly as an outsider with without those pre-assumptions, it's easier to see problems. But what does become a difficulty is the different specialists, because often it's a, a team of different specialists, each comes with their own simple set of solutions. And instead of seeing how we can build it together, we're sort of blinded by our own areas. So I wonder what Gary recommends where you've got a, I mean, a firefighter analogy the firefighter is the person on the ground or in the fire, so it's down to them. But if you look at a complicated accident in a nuclear facility, there's human factors, process safety, mechanical, control engineers, many, many different people will have understood why barriers have failed. So how do you get to them to communicate properly and not lead to simplistic solutions? That's Because the outcome is people tend to end up coming up with very simplistic solutions because they're the only ones which will get accepted by all the specialists. So challenge of getting a broad team to work together without getting locked into a simplistic solution. Right. So that's an important challenge. So what are you going to do? 
you know that there are going to be some individuals who are going to offer simplistic responses because that's that's the way the game is played. Worse than that, they may offer self-serving responses that uh, the solution here is to uh, increase the budget for my department because uh, these are the things that we've been wanting to do. And so every department, you know, can can dust off requests that they've made that have been ignored. And, and so every accident becomes an opportunity to uh, to revive these failed initiatives. Um, uh, and there's there's another issue. You, you, you want to get people to, to think constructively. And there may be people that you don't want in the room. There may be people that, that, that are going to hijack the meeting. And you, you, uh, you want to have a sense of who they might be because you want it to be a productive meeting and you want to keep it, it focused. And you want people to break out of their stovepipes. Um, do I have suggestions about how to do this? I don't, I don't have wonderful suggestions for you, except um, to, to see if, if you can get people to listen to each other more carefully. And here I'm thinking about the work of Phil Tetlock and his colleagues with the Super Forecasters and the Good Judgment Institute that they set up. The technique they have of gisting, where if if you and I are disagreeing about something, the super forecasters don't want harmony because harmony is to come up with something that everybody can agree with means that everybody gets a veto, and that's that's a a certain road to mediocrity and 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 not making any bold movements ahead. You want people to hold on to their viewpoints, but you want others to listen to them. So the technique the super forecasters have is, because uh, they're usually working remotely, is if you come up with an opinion, um, and I'm clearly uh, disagreeing with it, the onus is on me to write the gist of what you've said. And I've got to write it simply maybe just a paragraph you might have like a, a two-page position paper i just get a paragraph to capture the gist of what you've said and you have to agree that i've captured the essence and i haven't distorted it that doesn't mean i agree with you but i have to listen to you so that's something that you might you might do is have people prepare their position papers in advance see where the disagreements are likely to be and try to prepare the the team to listen to each other uh, in a way that they're not used to. And so I'm not just listening to you in order to shoot down your approach, because that's the way too many people listen. I'm listening for where I can attack you rather than what's, what's good and valuable about your approach. Well, it is the top of hour, and I see people are having to leave to, I guess, to go to other meetings here. So we didn't cover all, all your subjects in the book, Harry. We didn't touch artificial intelligence, war and expertise, speculative thinking, and 
as you just talked about teamwork itself. So hopefully people will buy your book and they can also read all your essays here. So as I always end these sessions here, what are your three takeaways you would like to leave the viewers? Okay, the takeaways, there's like the trivial takeaway uh, would be buy the book, read the book, <laughs> tell your friends together. <laughs> but you're looking for something more substantial than that. And one is, um, I hope people will um, get engaged in the process of learning to see cognition, learning to go beyond what people do and to, to appreciate how people are thinking, what their assumptions are, what their beliefs are, what their mental models are. And second is to use this approach with experts. When you talk to experts, the experts have trouble articulating their tacit knowledge. So it's going to take more effort, but it's well worth that effort. I think there's great value uh, in that. And the third takeaway is to shift a, a mindset from a very um, procedural mindset, a mindset that's dismissive of experts, to a very curious mindset. When you encounter things that you weren't expecting, instead of dismissing it, to say, what's that all about? I wonder, I wonder what I can learn from that. Yeah, cool. <clears throat> I think really great, three great takeaways. So tomorrow, over to you. Well, thank you, Gary, for joining us today. This has been a phenomenal conversation. You've got a lot of things going in my mind and, and working. I am going to be doing a recap article after this. So watch out for that. And thank you for taking your time to join us and share your knowledge and your expertise. It's just been priceless being here, being able to listen. And thank you to the audience for joining us because without you, we wouldn't even have a show. And Gary Wong, thank you for again, taking your time to volunteer and be our community host for these sessions. Thank you. Great, okay, so see you next month and all. Take care. See you next month, bye. All right.